Hello and welcome. I'm Julie Elliott, the editor of Module 9 at 1122.space and your host for Module 9's new podcast. This week, featuring the first edition of a special series from the Written Word blog, highlighting important literary passages gathered from publications otherwise lost in time. As always, information that I think will matter to you because it often matters to us all. Also, be sure to share the knowledge. To paraphrase, a curious mind is a terrible thing to waste. And now, on with the show. Hello again, I am Julie Elliott, and you're listening to the podcast for Module 9 at 1122. This is the first edition of a special series from the Written Word blog, today featuring literary passages from the works of the late Reverend Mr. Robert Rickletoon, Minister of the Gospel at Hobkirk, in three volumes never before printed, published from 1771 to 1772 and The Decline of Capitalism by Corey Lewis, published in 1932. Join me now for the works of the late Reverend Mr. Robert Rickletoon. The writer who understands his business will never indeed lose sight of the point he has in view, nor omit anything that is necessary or proper for attaining his purpose. But at the same time, he will lay the materials together in such an easy, natural way that every new thought shall appear to be suggested by what went before, until the whole plan be finished, each part throwing light upon another, and all of them making one confident peace. It hath never been questioned that all the wisdom of the first ages consisted in certain facts handed down in the natural channel of tradition, from one age to another, which the conceited Greeks called the Barbary philosophy, and which their successors, the moderns, rejected as no philosophy at all, because it stands not on rational arguments and demonstrations, but only upon the authority of those who maintain the tradition, which is rejected with disdain as unworthy of a philosopher." The Greeks originally had no knowledge among them but what they received from traditions they gathered up among other nations. It was many ages downward ere they attempted to reason these points. Traveling was their course of education, and they who picked up the best of most authentic traditional facts were called wise men. In the beginning of Christianity, the gospel consisted only in a few plain facts— and their native consequences, which needed neither learning nor genius until they fell into the hands of philosophers, then indeed, by their refining upon them, they were served in the same manner as the original ones were by their predecessor, and every fact and every consequence must now be tried at the bar of what philosophers call reason. 
The knowledge of one's self has been in all the ages the most necessary, as being of all others the most useful, in so much that it may be said with a good degree of assurance that all that follows, miscarriages and disasters of every kind, have been owing either to the want or imperfection of it. That there are certain invisible powers immensely above human will readily occur to any who has but an ordinary degree of reflection. A reflection to will as naturally occur that we are at their mercy, which cannot but produce a superstitious fear of what we know not what, and which we are naturally left to lodge in whose things which we observe to have the greatest influence, the sun, moon, and stars, clouds, wind, etc. And if ever there was a time when the powers of the material heavens were understood and proper observations made on their natural effects, men's worships and adorations was like enough to rest there, and there it appears to have rested, until that valuable piece of knowledge was lost, and men came to worship, as a great part of the world do even to this day, they know not what. If we take the world as we find it, how many nations are there of perfect savages who have yet lived in society many thousands of years? Sure, their natural powers must be very low, when in all that time they could not find out how to make their best of what they had among their hands. But if we should allow that these are hardly men, which is yet by no means the case, for it is found that their capacities, when properly applied, are nothing short of our own. It is true indeed, beyond contradiction, that man, with respect to the whole both of his principles and practice, is entirely formed upon imitation and example, and really is what custom and use have made of him. And this accounts well enough for that obstinate tenaciousness which is so generally found among men, of even the most absurd and glaringly unreasonable opinions and practices so common among mankind, and would account likewise for these rights supporting them once to have a general footing. The Decline of Capitalism by Corey Lewis, published in 1932. In the United States, it was smugly assumed that economic decline was the lot of lesser breeds outside the law, the law of American prosperity everlasting. For hadn't American capitalism solved the problem of prosperity? But when prosperity crashed in the United States, and crashed more severely than in Europe, where the already existing economic crisis was aggravated by the new cyclical breakdown, the sentiment was general that capitalism is on trial. Some prophesied the crack of doom. Others argued that capitalism might survive if it reformed itself. The commercial capitalist who stimulated the development of new mode of production is thrust aside by the industrial capitalist. Expansion of the market makes necessary larger output an enlarged scale of production, and larger masses of fixed capital. Production becomes greater, more organized, and dominant. 
commercial capital and commerce itself are subordinate to industrial capital. The capitalist is both exploiter and constructive organizer of industry. Free competition measurably prevails. This was the stage of the technical economic changes of the Industrial Revolution, their consolidation in the ensuing years. Monopoly or finance capitalism is dominated by financial capitalists. Industry becomes increasingly large-scale, requiring constantly greater masses of capital. Free competition is replaced by monopoly competition. Capital more and more assumes the money form, serving as capital only when put to use by other persons or institution other than its owners. Industrial concentration and combination separate ownership, management, and control. Management becomes an institutional function of employees. There is an immense socialization of industry, the objective basis of a new social order. But control is usurped by financial capitalists and the banks under their mastery. Owners become absentees, renters in one form or another, who merely receive the income of the ownership. The capitalist is now a mere exploiter as the organization and management of industry is an employee function. Except for the unimportant small producers who still survive, the industrial capitalist is no more. Both the commercial and industrial capitalist operated primarily with their own money. Financial capitalists operate and secure control primarily with other people's money. The financial oligarchy, speculative, adventurous, wholly parasitic, dominates the capitalist class. This is the stage of the decline of capitalism. Monopoly capitalism is identified with decline and with capitalist manipulation of the forms of a new social order to maintain the old. A manipulation whose only result, until the revolutionary intervention of the working class, must be social economic decline and decay. The growth of industrial capitalism and its transformation into monopoly capitalism were accompanied by the growing magnitude and importance of money capital, which is separated from the function of capital itself. There is both an increase in the capital needs of large-scale industry and in social wealth, which increasingly assume the form of money capital. This capital is concentrated in the banks. Its sources are the funds of money capitalist and of industrial or commercial enterprises and the scattered savings of all classes of society. The bank's money capital is enormously augmented by credit, which is of constantly greater importance in capitalist production. Credit, whether based on savings or not, is a command over social labor. It reveals clearly the appropriation of surplus value, of unpaid labor, and is the source of profit for credit represents neither the saved capital of the capitalist nor, much of it, the savings of anybody, but merely command over labor. At the same time, credit becomes the basis of speculation, 
fraud, intensified competition, and overproduction, creating disturbances and maladjustments. The social nature of credit is, however, one form of the objective transition toward a new mode of production, toward socialism. Industry becomes constantly more dependent upon the money capital under the control of the banks. After the 1890s, the commercial banks engaged more and more extensively in investment operations led by the National City Bank under control of the Rockefellers. Private investment bankers, particularly the Morgans, did some commercial banking business and acquired control of commercial banks on a large scale to facilitate their underwriting operations. And all the great banks, commercial, investment, or trust, acquired control of insurance companies in order to manipulate their vast resources, which were mercilessly exploited and plundered. The process was accelerated after the World War, which the Banking Act of 1933, also known as Glass-Steagall, compels commercial banks to separate from their security affiliates. The stock of affiliates is sold to the bank's stockholders. Interlocking directories are prohibited, but community of interest is maintained. Moreover, the separation does not affect the indirect investment operations of commercial banks. The enormous centralization of financial control, infinitely greater than revealed in 1912 by the Money Trust investigation, is an institutional mechanism it operated through the banks, which are the flywheel of capitalist enterprise. Control of the mechanism is usurped by the financial oligarchy. Monopoly capitalism practically destroys the economic significance of the middle class and small producers and small merchants. This destroys the material conditions underlying the petty bourgeois ideals of economic individualism. Quote, the field of operations for independent manager owners, according to an engineer economist, will be steadily restricted. He will continue throughout to be a subordinate worker in a larger corporate organization. End quote. Ideals many persist beyond their economic basis, and the petty bourgeois ideal of economic individualism still survives. But it is now merely an ideological lag protecting the predatory financial capitalist who suppress economic individualism and free competition and increasingly exploit labor. Monopoly is the form of expression of the organization of capitalism. Quote, Capitalism is economically stable and ever gaining in stability. End quote. An argument especially plentiful in the United States in 1923 through 1929. This was answered with the word depression in American history. The fundamental causes of capitalist instability are the antagonism between old and new forms of production. Under the conditions of the decline of capitalism, they are aggregated by the downward tendency in the production and absorption 
of capital goods, the basis of capitalist prosperity. Hence, instability must increase. Monopoly state capitalism? They aim to unify, to organize capitalism, but their efforts are hopeless because of the underlying relations which impose limits upon monopoly. All that state capitalism does is to strengthen concentration and combination, to merge finance capital and the state, to preserve monopoly capitalism from collapse. The fundamental contradiction of monopoly capitalism is this. It is neither free competition nor complete unification of industry. Hence, monopoly capitalism retains most of the contradictions of free competition and generates new ones of its own. Most fundamental among the new contradictions is the retention by monopoly and state capitalism of the older social relations of production, while the forms of a new socialist mode of production are objectively fully developed. Hence, monopoly capitalism and the dictatorship of finance capital multiply the contradictions and antagonisms of capitalist production and engender an economic decline. Capitalist production is the extension of contradictions and antagonists on an enlarged scale, national and international, until they reach the breaking point. Well, that's all, folks. I hope I've provided information that is meaningful to you and helps you make wise decisions in the future. Thanks for visiting and come back soon for another Enlightening Module 9 at 1122 podcast. For a link to publications referenced and additional graphics, please visit Module 9 at www.1122.space. All copyrights are reserved.